0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Since the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine February of last year, Russian officials have repeatedly issued one particularly chilling warning to NATO and the nations that have been aiding Ukraine. They have said Russia's use of nuclear weapons is not off the table. Pundits on Russian TV talk up using tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield or strategic nuclear weapons against the U.S. or Britain, Ukraine's biggest suppliers of weaponry. And in a speech last September, Russian President Vladimir Putin said, I am not bluffing.
1: Our country, too, has different weapons of destruction. In some cases, they are more modern than those of NATO. If the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, then to defend Russia and our people, we shall, of course, use all means at our disposal. I am not bluffing.
0: But by and large, U.S. national security officials have said it's probably just that, a bluff. Their analysis is that the probability Russia would turn to nuclear weapons is very low. Here, for example is an exchange just last month in a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing. Maine Senator Angus King questions Defense Intelligence Agency Director Lieutenant General Scott Barrier and Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines.
2: What's the analysis of the likelihood of Putin using nuclear weapons? What, what would trigger it and how likely is it?
3: Senator, there, there are a number of uh, scenarios that we've thought through, and, and I'd be happy to discuss those in a closed session.
2: Well, I think in an open session, though, can you tell me that whether you think there is a, some likelihood or possibility of nuclear weapons being um, used? I, I think, you know, in
3: the nature of conflict, there's always that possibility. Right now, I would say we think it's unlikely.
2: Unlikely is, is good. I'd rather y- hear not happen, but uh, we can discuss this
0: further in a closed session. Um, can I... Yes, go ahead, also please.
4: Say, I think from the IC perspective, it's very unlikely, is our current assessment
0: the IC being shorthand for the intelligence community. There are some in the national security community, however, who believe the chances of Russia using a nuclear weapon are significantly higher than very unlikely. Kevin Ryan is a retired brigadier general. He was a Soviet and Russian expert throughout his 29 years in the Army. He also served as defense attache at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow from 2001 to 2003. He's now a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Governments, Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and founder of a very interesting group called the ELBA Group. It's a small group of U.S. and Russian senior retired military intelligence veterans. And retired brigadier general Ryan Ryan recently wrote a paper titled Why Putin Will Use Nuclear Weapons in Ukraine. And he joins us now. Mr. Ryan, welcome to On Point. Thank you very much, Mike. So first of all, help us um, decipher a little bit of what we heard in that exchange in the Senate Armed Services Committee. Because publicly, we heard Barrier and Haynes saying the possibility, their analysis of the possibility of Russia using a nuclear weapon is unlikely or very unlikely. But I also heard uh, Lieutenant General Barrier say he would discuss things further in yeah. closed session. And Avril Haynes also mentioned, um, I think, uh, another time in that exchange, that uh, the current situation in Ukraine may force Vladimir Putin to use asymmetric options. So how do you decipher what's really going on there? So it is very difficult
2: to, to see through the fog of what's going on. Uh, there are a lot of very... Uh, good analysts, uh, experts who I respect very much, including General Barrier and uh, uh, Haynes. And uh, uh, they say that these threats are serious, which I agree with. Uh, But then they say they're unlikely, which means to me that they're not urgent, that they're not something that will rise to the top of the inbox for governments and elected officials and even military leaders. Okay.
0: So is it possible at all, though, that in order to not panic the public, they would be saying unlikely in an open session of a Senate committee hearing, but perhaps communicating something different? uh,
2: So so it's possible in one or two instances that somebody might take attack like that. Uh, And uh, I don't discount that, but over the broad uh, uh, time of comments and and, – Uh, assessments that are made public, uh, they're all, uh, most of them are saying unlikely. So I think they
0: believe that they're unlikely. Okay. And there has been consistency in that ever since February of of last year. But we're now in June of 2023, right? It's basically a year and a half later since uh, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine began. And in your paper, you write, The evidence is strong that the problem is urgent, Mm. and you argue that Putin Putin will use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, in the war in Ukraine, and that people need not wonder about Putin's nuclear use red lines or how to avoid crossing them, and that he is not waiting for a misstep by the West.
2: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, but let me uh, get to what I think is the heart of the matter here, that uh, for Putin, he needs to hold on to the land that he's taken already from Ukraine. He might have had other goals at the beginning of this war. Uh, Those goals now have evolved. I think he's uh, okay with keeping what he's taken and also Crimea, what he had before. Uh, If he loses those things, though, his regime is at risk, and he could be uh, kicked out. He could be thrown out, uh, and for him, this would be intolerable. This is why uh, CIA Director uh, Burns has said a couple times, Putin cannot afford to lose, he will not Mm -hmm. lose. So if he's in that position where he's losing, if Ukraine has success in its counteroffensive and breaks the land bridge, et cetera, then then he needs to escalate the the war. That's a very fundamental military uh, response. You have to escalate in order to meet the success that your enemy is having. If he cannot escalate conventionally, he yeah. only has one to a left—the nuke.
0: Okay, so that—that that was the, you anticipated. My next question is that the, that uh, escalation can involve other things yes, before the most powerful Absolutely. weapon ever developed.
2: Absolutely, and he's escalated from the first of this war, uh, where he tried to do the uh, tried to take over Ukraine with a lightning uh, attack, and maybe the assassination or capture of Zelensky, et cetera. Uh, that didn't work. He went to Plan B. Uh, that involved a lot of damage and destruction. Escal- if you want to see escalation, look at Bakhmut. Uh, but even so, the Ukrainians have fought back. So, uh, And if they have success now, by definition, that means he's not able to escalate conventionally to get and keep what he wants.
0: You know, as I read your paper, I there's many messages that uh ring very loudly here. And one of them is that um it's never wise to hold on to to static presumptions, right? In right. in a changing scenario. So the presumptions that we may have had in February right. of 2022 um don't necessarily hold now. Correct. So tell me a little bit more about what you are seeing uh, maybe tactically that's going on on the ground mm-hmm. that um, that has led you to feel this greater urgency. And let's start off with you know, what we're just seeing recently within the past couple of weeks in terms of Russia's deployment of nuclear weapons um, outside of Russia. Sure. Uh, why
2: would you need to deploy tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus? Uh, that's the big question. Putin hasn't really given a satisfactory answer why he would do that. Uh, uh, he may be just trying to uh, set up a situation which he can use later as leverage in negotiations with the West. Uh, well, I might be willing to remove these if you did some other things yourself. But uh, Russia in, in general doesn't uh, waste money. They're not a rich country. And they wouldn't go through all of this hubbub uh, with their nuclear weapons, uh, moving them to look uh, to uh, Belarus, if there wasn't a uh, strategic reason for it. Uh, I I don't know the exact reason, but it put, certainly puts a, a greater threat for their use on the table. Uh, during in January, uh, President Putin assigned three new uh, military leaders to. Uh, to run his, what he calls, special military operation. He also calls it a war now. Uh, And they are the chief of the general staff. That's uh, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley's counterpart, Karasimov. There's the head of the ground forces, Selikov, and the head of the uh, aerospace forces, the Air Force, uh, uh, Surivikin. What's important about these guys is that they are the three officers who control the use of tactical nuclear weapons once they are authorized. Uh, and they're on the ground there. So he has the three most loyal officers uh, in position to use tactical nuclear weapons. There's really no other reason for these three people to have been selected to run this uh, special military operation. In fact, it's kind of counterproductive and against military, I'll say, doctrine or, or tradition to have your chief of the general staff out there running
0: field operations. Ah, I see what you mean. Okay. Now, just for— uh, to give folks a little bit more context, it was just what last week where uh, Belarus's president Alexand- Alexander Lukashenko talked about the, the receiving the tactical nuclear right. weapons from uh, from Russia, claiming that some of them were three times as powerful as what the United States used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And what's fascinating fascinating is not the right word but perhaps more more chilling is that if i if memory serves this is the first time that russia has ever moved nuclear weapons outside of russia even prior to the, the soviet union the fall it, of the soviet union it is the first time since the end of the cold war since the end of the cold war right. okay okay
2: but this is a good example uh, you're getting to here why did they have nuclear weapons outside the boundary of the soviet union in the uh, cold war they had them in the uh, warsaw pact countries we know they had them in East Germany. Uh, they had them in Berlin. Uh, I remember at the end of the Cold War, it was a few months after the Russians began evacuating their ammo sites there, uh, the Russian commander came to the American commander and said, hey, could you guys lend us some Geiger counters? We need to do some checks in our ammo sites. Uh, the, the the clear implication was that they had radioactive material in those ammo sites. So. They were ready to use nuclear weapons. Both sides were ready to use tactical nuclear weapons during the Cold War. But uh, there's no doubt that the Russians think about them as a bigger bullet.
0: Well, we are speaking with retired Brigadier General Kevin Ryan. He recently wrote a paper titled Why Putin Will Use Use Nuclear Weapons in Ukraine. And we have a link to it, by the way, at onpointradio.org. There's much more to discuss in just a moment. We'll be back. This is On Point. five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti, And today we're speaking with Kevin Ryan. He's a retired brigadier general who served in the army for almost three decades. And during that time, he was a Soviet and Russia expert. He also served as former defense attache to Moscow from 2001 to 2003 and recently wrote a paper titled "Why Putin Will Use Nuclear Weapons in Ukraine." Uh, and Brigadier General, I wonder if we could actually just take a step back and, and get some more historical context here, which you point out in the paper. Um, you actually see uh, Russia as having relied more on um, on nuclear weapons as a possible um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a possible uh, weapon. It, even prior to the Rus- the Ukrainian invasion. Tell me about that.
2: Right. Well, j- historically, at least during the Cold War, Russia's p- military power rested on two pillars. It's conventional forces, which it could use to bully and uh, uh, frighten both neighbors and, and uh, satellite countries, uh, and it's nuclear forces, which it could use to keep the United States and the West from uh, attacking Russia or escalating any uh, conflict that Russia might start. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, the conventional military has been under great pressure. They had very little money. They, uh, uh, they were months in arrears for pay during the 90s. Uh, uh, the, the conventional force fell apart, basically. And so they only had one pillar left to lean on, and that was the nuclear one, and they, they leaned on it. They said— uh, well, there's an old joke uh, about the two uh, officers and the American says, you know, my nuclear weapons uh, it cost all this money and they sit in a silo and I don't use them at all. And the Russian officer says, I use mine every day. <laughs> and what he meant was that they're leaning on those to guarantee their security. Russia uh, reformed its conventional force. They thought they might have a new uh, conventional force. They were successful in Crimea in 2014. They had success in Syria. Uh, They figured that they had rebuilt uh, this uh, Soviet conventional force to some degree, but uh, the the first year of war in Ukraine says that they haven't. So that's why you hear these continued references and threats for nuclear attack, because that's what they're leaning on. That's their... That's the only thing that scares American
0: military mm. leaders right now. Okay, so there's that there's that historical context. You talked about the change uh, that Putin did in in military leadership around nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. um, and what we're seeing uh, on the ground in terms of like the positioning of uh, some of these Russian weapons. But I come back to that sentence at the beginning of your paper about um, Putin is not waiting for a trigger. Right. Uh, but you also said that. Right now, what's happening in Ukraine could, in a sense, serve as, if not the trigger, then the thing that pushes Russia to finally using the nuclear option, and and that's the Ukrainian counteroffensive that's going on. Right, uh,
2: and I apologize if that's confusing, but the uh, what I mean is that Putin has uh, certain uh, policy, doctrinal, uh, uh, legal. Uh, uh, barriers or obstacles or decision gate, uh, gates uh, that he has to get through in order to, if he wants to do it, quote-unquote, legally and with uh, in, in conjunction with his own constitution, etc., he has things that he has to do to show his own people at home I was uh, right to use a tactical nuclear weapon if he's going to use one. He, What I mean is that he is— he has basically laid that entire argument out for his people. Hmm. He has done that so that they already know, and they would say today, "Oh, well, of course, you know, the Ukrainians have been attacking our country. The country's uh, sovereignty and existence is at risk." All these things Putin has talked about. Uh, at the same time, uh, he's not going to use a nuclear weapon if he can keep what he's got, because that he has uh, he has control of the regime. He has control of 20% of Ukraine. Uh, it's something he can build on. That uh, if he loses that, then his position as the leader is at risk, and he could be overthrown, taken out, whatever you want to call it. He does. He desperately doesn't want to end up like uh, Saddam and Gaddafi uh, ended up, uh, and and uh, that could very well happen to him if his country suffered a catastrophic defeat in That
0: Ukraine. there would be an overthrow in Russia of yes. Putin if he suffers a defeat in, in Ukraine? Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's a little bit odd, but uh,
2: in some ways, Putin is more reliant on public approval than uh, the United States president. The president has to be really popular once every four years. And in between, he can do whatever he thinks is right. And nobody's going to come knocking at his door to tell him to get out of the office. If Putin's popularity drops below uh, 40%, uh, 50%, uh, 30%, somewhere in that re- region, uh, and the people start marching in the streets, uh, then his own inner circle will come for him and say, we can't tolerate this. So you're, you've got to leave. That would be the best situation for him, or or we won't make you leave.
0: Huh? Okay. Well, I want to come back to that thought in just a minute. But l- let, let's focus for a second on the Ukrainians, right? Because right. If your analysis uh, uh, plays out, it puts the Ukrainians in a terrible catch twenty-two, right? Because of course yeah. they want to re- regain their national territory. They right. want their counteroffensive to be successful. But you're saying that if it is, it could be the very thing that uh, pushes Putin to attack Ukraine with a tactical nuclear weapon.
2: Right. Uh, it's not a. Uh, it's not a situation anybody wants. Uh, but you've described it perfectly, so the question is what should be the United States position be? Should we be forcing Ukraine to settle for uh, for peace at any cost here? Uh, do we want to go back to nineteen thirty nine uh, uh, and nineteen thirty eight before World War two when we saw our choices war uh, get into this war or allow things to happen? Maybe one more thing happening isn't going to be the big Problem? Uh, uh, maybe maybe we can get by. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that the U.S. policy is to support Ukraine, and I ha- I agree with that policy. And so, if a nuclear weapon is highly likely in such a situation where Ukraine is successful, then the question shouldn't be well How do we how do we change that goal? The question should be What do we do, knowing that a nuclear weapon? might be used or or will be used or has been used yesterday. That might be the best way to think about it.
0: Well, isn't one possibility of what do we do is to strengthen um, every tool we have, every deterrence tool that we have, right? And, I mean, one of them would be... I mean to put it in a very rudimentary form just just make it an imp- an impossible choice for for Putin and I think that was the presumption back in February of last year that the uh the response from NATO and the West would be so overwhelming so devastating to Russia or Putin himself specifically that I think remember the language was he's not suicidal so he wouldn't yeah. do that
2: Yeah well uh, I, I Listen, I don't disagree with the United States government about its policy toward Ukraine. Uh, but that policy says we will not use a nuclear weapon to defend Ukraine, and we will not have American soldiers killing Russian soldiers because that would be, as Biden says, World War Three. So if you take those two things off the table, then all of your quote-unquote catastrophic responses are things that, excuse me, will not move— President Putin.
3: Hmm.
0: Now about uh, NATO, uh, they've said recently, and I guess also repeatedly that one of the reasons why um, Ukraine would not qualify for a a NATO response under Article Five is because it's not a a NATO member nation. But I am seeing though that um, there's some, let's call it a little more vague language that if Putin used a tactical nuclear weapon and you know the radiation cloud from that. Uh, drifted into well, Finland now, or some, some other sure. NATO member state. That that might be enough to yeah. trigger Article Five. Yeah. Well,
2: uh, the Article Five thing is is uh, is more like a guideline, uh, as they say. Yeah. Uh, uh You know, we didn't. Uh, uh, we used NATO's power to uh, help stop the uh, Serbian uh, attacks in Kosovo, the humanitarian crisis there. Um, We've NATO forces have deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. So uh, NATO can do more than what's in Article five or can do less. You know, it can also turn a blind eye uh, to something going on if it chooses to do that.
0: Okay, so we're going to hear from another voice here in just a minute or two. But but Brigadier General Ryan, I wanted to ask you about sort of where your uh, the the the, re- the sources for your your analysis are coming from because as I mentioned earlier, you're the founder of a of an of a group called the Elba Group, and it's a, a small group of U.S. and Russian senior retired military and intelligence veterans. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, well, the meeting on the Elba at the end of World War II was the uh, inspiration for this group. You know, hands across the water against a fascist Germany. Finding common ground between the two countries. When we started meeting in 2010, uh, our biggest uh, issue was preventing some sort of uh, uh, terrorist or or uh, uh, non-state nuclear attack. Uh, we we uh, covered a lot of other subjects over the last uh, decade plus of our meetings, and and uh, these people were brought together specifically because they're not academics, they're not diplomats. They're architects of wars uh, in Chechnya, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. Uh, We have the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency and a former head of the GRU, which is the Russian equivalent. Uh, And we would sit and sometimes there would be heated moments, sometimes finger pointing, uh, but we did it with uh, respect and we were able to find common ground in a lot of things. Now, since this war started, the U.S. side and the Russian side have agreed that uh, there won't be any real discussions until the fighting stops. Those are the, That's the way we phrased it. So a ceasefire at a minimum uh, before we would even consider coming back to the table. Uh, but uh, in, in the span of a decade working with these senior FSB, CIA, DIA, GRU, and military officers, you begin to get an insight into how they think, how they interpret uh, things that are going on. Can I give you one more example? Please do. Uh, The former DIA chief sitting next to the former GRU chief watching reports about what was unfolding in Crimea and and in the uh, Donbass back in 2014 uh, and looking at a TV uh, uh, report side by side, could not agree on what they were seeing. So this is the kind of the mismatch you have uh, between the two uh, leaderships, the two elites, if you will, uh, the security and intelligence elites. They see things drastically differently, really, even though they're looking at the exact same thing at the same time. What was the nature of their disagreement? Well, uh, f- from, the U- from the US side, we said, okay, this is uh, a Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. And from the Russian side, they said, no, 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 this is uh, an overthrow of the Ukrainian government by neo-Nazis, and we're going in to protect uh, the Russian-speaking people of Crimea and eastern Ukraine. So, uh, you know, did they have any bit of truth to them? Uh, uh, in a way, there were neo-Nazis involved in the Maidan, but they weren't the reason, and certainly. Uh, Uh, there were Russian-speaking people who felt, uh, you know, downtrodden under the Ukraine regime. But that's not uh, any uh, reason for Russia to do a full-scale invasion.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, Kevin Ryan, hold on here for just a second, because I'd like to bring in Ambassador Michael McFaul into the conversation. He's currently director at Stanford University's Freeman uh, Spolyi Institute for International Studies. He was the U.S. ambassador to Moscow from 2012 to 2014, and author of From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. Ambassador McFaul, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So I think one of the the key things that Brigadier General Ryan has said here is that conditions now are simply just different from what they were in February of 2022. But given that, do you still maintain your belief that Vladimir Putin would not use nuclear weapons in Ukraine?
3: Well, the first thing that I think we all need to say is, I don't know. Uh, the general doesn't know. Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, doesn't know. Avril Haines, the head of DNI, doesn't know. And that's part of the problem in dealing with Vladimir Putin. We do not have good intelligence about the way he thinks, uh, his, uh, the way he talks about these things is one thing, the way he thinks about them is another. And I think we should just all humbly admit that we're all guessing here. Um, and I, I deal with the Biden administration top officials very often. I can report to you, they're guessing too. Um, they have said on record what their guesses are uh the intelligence people which is it's a very low probability event that's the way the intelligence community likes to talk right low probability medium probability high probability when i was in the government i used to think why is there only three options Why can't wait why isn't this not on a scale but that's the way they talk the job of the policy makers is even if it's a low probability say one percent mm-hmm. the job of president biden and jake sullivan the national security advisor secretary of state blinken is to reduce that from 1% to 0.9, 0.8, 0.7, because of course, it would be a catastrophic event uh, if Mr. Putin chose to use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine. And, and so far, we're just talking about that scenario. A scenario vis-a-vis us, I think, is is even a much lower probability that. My own My own reading of Putin, I, you know, I know I used to, uh, I've known him since 1991. I've written many books about him. I dealt with him for five years. I continue to watch what he says very closely, uh, and what his aides say, and what his generals say. Um, I still think it's. I agree with the United States uh, intelligence community. I think it's a very low probability event. Uh, and if you listen to what they say, he they say we will use, including just a few days ago, we will use nuclear weapons if the our country is at risk, if there's an existential threat to the Russian Federation. Well, the I hear that as good news because they are not under an existential threat. NATO is not going to invade Russia. Uh, This is not Libya and Iraq. I'm sorry, General, but but we invaded those countries. We have no plans to invade Russia. Uh, And therefore, when I hear him say we're going to use these to protect the the homeland, I think that means that he's not going to use them in Ukraine. And 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 the second thing I would say, I just listened to your conversation and it's important. We're, uh, to, to also underscore that we're guessing about domestic politics in Russia. We don't know what will happen there. It's hard to know what preferences are. It's hard to do polling in countries, uh, autocracies. But but again, this is a subject I've been following for many decades. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see the scenario under which, you know, let's say they do lose and the, they break the land bridge and they're losing the war. It's very hard for me to understand how we go from that to Putin being overthrown. And and let's think about that. Who, who would go on the streets to protest losing the war? But most people in Russia are agnostic to this war and, and polling, although it's all flawed, but the polling we have show that if Putin tomorrow night got on TV and said, we've won the war, it's over, the vast majority of Russians would support yeah. him.
0: Ambassador mm. McFall, hang on here for just a second. I just have to take a quick break and Brigadier General Ryan, um, stand by too. Much more to discuss in a minute when we come back. This is On Point.
3: Did you kill Marlene Johnson?
0: This is on point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We're joined today by retired Brigadier General Kevin Ryan and Ambassador Michael McFall. And Ambassador McFall, you, you had said before the break that um, that your analysis is that Russia would not use uh, a nuclear weapon in Ukraine unless it felt that uh, Russia itself. Were under attack. Now, I just want to dig into that a little bit more, and then um, uh, uh, Brigadier General Ryan will get your response, um, because we have a little bit of tape here, Ambassador McFall, of Dmitry Trenin, who, as you know, is a prominent Russian scholar. He's currently a fellow at the Center for International Security in Moscow, and just last year, he gave an interview to a Russian think tank where he argues that the U.S. is breaking protocol established between Washington and Moscow uh, that was established after the Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: This Ukraine war has demonstrated to at least part of the Russian community, and I'm part of that part, that what we thought as a guarantee that the Russian vital interests will not be violated by the United States was not exactly what we thought it was. Essentially, you have a situation in which the other nuclear superpower has set the goal that it never set during the Cold War. And that is inflicting a strategic defeat on Russia, the other nuclear superpower.
0: Trenin also said that he sees the United States as slowly escalating the conflict in Ukraine by providing more weaponry, from shoulder-fired missiles in the beginning to Patriot batteries and tanks and F-16 fighter jets. And Trennan said that sometimes things that are started cannot be stopped.
1: What appears to me the US strategy in this war is that of a gradual escalation. So this salami tactic. Is extremely dangerous. These things are often run not according to somebody's plan, but as a reaction reaction dynamic. And my conclusion is that the trajectory of the current conflict is leading us directly to a kinetic collision between Russian and NATO forces and ultimately to an exchange between America and Russia. And this fills me with. As much worry as you can imagine, because it could lead to nuclear annihilation,
0: so Ambassador McFall there, what I take from um from those two clips is that it doesn't necessarily have to be um the fear of uh, the violation of Russians, russias Russia's uh, you know uh, sovereignty or physical integrity, but the fear of strategic defeat, as Trennan says, that could be enough to provide the trigger for the use of a nuclear weapon. Your thoughts on that?
3: Well, again, I wanna underscore, we're all guessing here. Dmitri, I've known Dimitri for 30 years. Uh, we used to work together in Moscow. Uh, uh, he used to run the Carnegie Center. Um, uh, he's guessing too. We're all guessing, we don't know. And I, I think that's really important for everybody to humbly admit that we don't know the dynamics that he's talking about. That said, when I listened to him speak, he's very close to the, the the Kremlin. He's you know, representing their views on purpose. I think there's a very concrete military objective that Putin and Dmitry Medvedev, who speaks about this a lot, the former president Dmitry Trenin just now, they are trying to deter the United States from providing more sophisticated military weapons. And you know what? They're succeeding. I think we need to understand that. It's a very concrete military objective. It's not something about the future. It's threatening we might use nuclear weapons, so you better not send F-16s, you better not send attackums; these long range missile systems, and uh, it's succeeding. So, so that I think is the central reason why you hear these kinds of threats.
0: Mm. The
3: well, other thing I think is really important to say too, though, uh, we are all assuming that there is a, and I'm not a general, I'm not a military expert, but I talk to them oftentimes. And I talk to people in Kiev every single day there's an assumption in this discussion, which I think we need to challenge. Mm-hmm. That is, if if Putin uses a nuclear weapon, uh, A, it's somehow our fault, which I radically disagree with. Somehow this tit for tat, you know, the way Trenin is talking, it'll be our fault. No, it'll be Vladimir Putin's fault. We didn't start this war. This is a war of imperialism, annexation. We responded to what they did. But number two, let's play out the horrific, horrible scenario that Putin uses a nuclear weapon inside uh, Ukraine. What happens inside Ukraine? You think the Ukrainians are just gonna stop fighting and they're gonna say, okay, you know, war's over. I think it'll be exactly the opposite response from them. Uh, you think President Biden is gonna get on TV and say, well, now that Mr. Putin's used a nuclear weapon, we're gonna withdraw our support from the Ukrainian forces there is no way he will make that speech and if he tried to politically it would be suicide Mm -hmm. you think xi jinping is going to say well my good friend here vladimir putin uh he's broken uh, a taboo that we've had since 1945 but i stand by him no way the the dozens of countries in the middle east africa latin america asia who so far have been neutral in this war They're gonna rally behind Putin because he used a nuclear weapon? I don't think so. I just hope Mr. Putin knows all the things I just talked about. That's the part I don't know about, but I think we're making an assumption about the usefulness of of a tactical nuclear weapon that I just think this is not 1945. This is not the end of World War II. This is not a defeated uh, uh, society like Japan was in their army. This is Ukraine that thinks they're just in what they're fighting for. And I have no doubt if he uses a nuclear weapon, they will fight even stronger, even longer uh, to try to defeat this invading yeah. army.
0: Well, um, I, I will note that... Um Actually, because you mentioned President Biden, Ambassador McFall, that just a couple of days ago after denouncing uh, Russia's deployment of tactical tactical nukes to Belarus, um, President Biden also said uh, that he does worry about Putin using tactical nuclear weapons. Quote, it's real. That's from the president. But uh, Brigadier General, you've been uh, waiting patiently here. Go ahead and respond to what uh, Ambassador McFaul is saying. So
2: I think the ambassador has a good description of re- Ukraine's reaction and even the West's reaction after. nuclear weapon is used. It will not be uh, as happened at uh, the end of uh, World War II in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The fighting will go on. And for the first time, we will be working and fighting on a nuclear battlefield. Now, is this uh, something that that doesn't have uh, uh, catastrophic effects? Uh, No, it does have catastrophic effects. You know, we we trained throughout the Cold War to fight on nuclear battlefields. uh, Uh, I was in Germany for eight years uh, learning how to decontaminate and to to move forces and so on uh, after a nuclear weapon is used. Um, But uh, the thing that I disagree with uh, fundamentally about that the ambassador has said is that uh, the nuclear deterrent that Russia has been relying on has been succeeding and has been working and has been doing what they want. I think that they see, the Russian uh, security elite see, that this nuclear deterrent has let them down, in fact has not been helping uh, them and not doing what they want. For example, uh, when they look back at the 1990s and the 2000s, they see a slow and steady advance by NATO into uh, Eastern Europe. Their nuclear uh, arsenal did nothing to stop that. They had nothing with which to stop it. Uh, this is one of their major complaints uh, in uh, December before the uh, uh, the war started. Uh, Putin said, "Well, my demands are that no more NATO expansion, no more NATO forces in bordering countries, and and uh, go back to 1997." The, well, uh, none of those things are happening, uh, and yet uh, Russia's had to, uh, and Russia's had its uh, invasion of Ukraine. So uh, when they look at w- what is this nuclear uh, arsenal done for us? I think they have to give it a C minus. It's really not helped them. And so how do you make this thing more effective? People like Trenin, Karaganov, other uh, Russian pundits and and experts are saying, look, the way we make this more effective is we use it. Mm. We create fear in the West by using it.
0: Okay. Now, um, I I know we could could actually speak in depth uh, about the points that both of you just made. But unfortunately, I'm constrained by the time that we have for this program. And we only have uh, a few minutes left. So there's two things I'd like to do. One is I just want to um, zero in for a minute on culturally some trends that we see going on inside of Russia. uh, And then... Both of you have asked a really important question about, OK, well, we don't exactly know what's going on in Vladimir Putin's head. But, you know, I think the, the best thing to do is to ask, well, what if it happens? What would we do in response? So think about those things, uh, Ambassador McFall and Brigadier General Ryan. Um, but about what's happening culturally in Russia, some very interesting things. Um, we spoke with Dima Adamski, who's a scholar at Israel's Reichman University and author of Russian Nuclear Orthodoxy. And he says that since Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year and a half ago, he has seen a huge spike in Russia in talk about using nuclear weapons. And he sees two trends coming together.
4: One is further nuclearization of Russian strategic thought. Russian establishment is adjusting the country's deterrence posture basically doubling down on new doctrines and establishing organs responsible for nuclear deterrence what is really interesting and unprecedented is that in parallel the russian public appears to have become more comfortable with the idea of using nuclear weapons and when you're looking at this belligerent nuclear rhetoric official and unofficial you're looking at something that appears like an erosion of nuclear taboo. Боеголовка на нем мощностью до 100 мегатон. Взрыв этой термоядерной торпеды у берегов Британии поднимет гигантскую волну цунами высотой до 500
0: метров. You're hearing an example right now of the rhetoric that Adamski is talking about. Dmitry Kiselyov leads Russia's state media group, and he's a frequent commentator on Russian TV. Last year, he gave a dramatic presentation to Russian viewers about what a Poseidon underwater nuclear drone could do to the British Isles. And in that tape, he said the warhead on it has a yield of up to 100 megatons. The explosion by Britain's coastline would cause a giant tsunami up to 500 meters high. And such a barrage alone carries extreme doses of radiation. Having passed over the British Isles, it will turn whatever might be left of them into a radioactive desert. Well, Dima Adamski says the message from the Russian government and media to the Russian people constantly amplifies one specific claim that the Ukraine war is a fight for the very survival of Russia.
4: The notion that using nuclear weapons should be the last resort, but not an unthinkable option, it became really routine in the Russian media. And both Putin and Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, they embraced the language of martyrdom, uh, purifying sacrifice, and repentance, all for the sake of winning this war. By the way, we had an example a couple of months ago of a popular Russian rock singer um, who produced a hymn to the most advanced Russian intercontinental ballistic missile. One of their final uh, lyrics of their song is God and this ICBM called Sarmat are with us. Islam is
0: That's Russian singer uh, Denis Maidenov in a video released by Park Patriot Media, the propaganda arm of the Russian Defense Ministry. And the song about the RS-28 Sarmat intercontinental ballistic missile debuted In December of last year, including the lyrics from Mother Russia, stare far out to the Sarmatushka on the United States, the only comfort for Sarmats is to disturb NATO's dreams.
4: Basically, what I'm arguing is that we might be looking at their vicious cycle when military's embrace of nuclear operations merges with normalization of nuclear weapons in public consciousness and this nexus is also making the public tolerate and perhaps even encourage the Kremlin's assertive nuclear gambits.
0: Well, that was Dima Adamski, professor at Israel's Reichman University. We've only got two minutes left, so I'm going to give a minute to each of you gentlemen. Uh, and Ambassador McFall, again, you're right. We don't know exactly what's going on in Putin's head. The best we can do is guess, but we can also prepare, right? So what... Would you recommend we should do, we being NATO and the West, should do if even that tiny possibility of the use of a nuclear weapon actually takes place?
3: Actually takes place or we try to deter it? Those
0: or deterrent I, I prefer deterrent. Well, for me, place. for yeah. me, it's
3: uh, the sooner this war ends, the better, the less likely he'll use a nuclear weapon. And the fastest way, the, the way to speed up the process for ending this war is to provide the Ukrainians with more and better weapons. To defeat his army on the battlefield with more and better sanctions, to stop sending Western technology to the making of weapons inside Russia. and, and to stop to think that the faster we do that, the more probable this war will end. And to not not think, uh, allow ourselves to be self-deterred by all this this rhetoric that Mr. Putin and these rock stars are saying. It's truly grotesque mm-hmm. what you just played and scary, but we have to help the Ukrainians win. That's the fastest way this war will end. Mm.
0: Uh, Well,
2: Kevin Ryan, you get the last thought here. I think on this we're going to agree. I think that the United States has to keep supporting Ukraine. Uh, I I think we have done a good job of evolving our policy toward Ukraine and the materials that we supply it from the beginning of the war when we wouldn't give them even armored vehicles to today now we've agreed to give them the airplanes and that they've been asking for. And our uh, our policy will have to evolve going forward. So if a nuke is used, I hope we evolve in the right way.
0: Well, that's retired Brigadier General Kevin Ryan. He's currently a senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. He's also former defense attache to Moscow from 2001 to 2003. Mr. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Ambassador Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Moscow and author of From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. Ambassador McFall, thank you, as always. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. This is On Point.